This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. Welcome, everyone. This is the Meaningful Sport Podcast, and I am your host, Nora Ronkainen. Meaningful Sport is a series of discussions on the why and how involvement in sport and physical activity can be an important part of a life worth living. If you are interested in the theme, you might also want to check out MeaningfulSport.com. There you can find podcast show notes, read a blog, and access many resources for further explorations of Meaningful Sport. In today's episode, we are exploring sport participation in later life and the world of master sport. Opportunities for involvement in physical activity in later life have increased and diversified. And many sports around the globe have categories for masters or veteran competition. At the same time, researchers have explored the experiences and meanings of being an older athlete, showing tensions in individual experiences as well as in shifting social discourse surrounding sport and aging. Today, I have the pleasure to have a conversation around this topic with one of the leading scholars on the study of aging and physical activity from a sociological perspective. Riley Dionigi is a professor of sport and exercise science at Charles Sturt University with expertise in qualitative research as well as sociology of active living and aging. Welcome to the podcast, Riley, and thanks so much for taking the time for our conversation. Hello, everyone, and yeah, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, absolutely. I've been looking forward to this conversation. And I think anyone who's been working on this area of aging from a more social science perspective, they cannot avoid coming across your work. So certainly a lot to discuss. And you've been working on this topic for such a long time and produced such a varied uh, scholarship in the area. But in the podcast, I always love to hear a little bit about the story behind the research. So who is the person who is doing this work and why was sport participation in later life? What became your key research topic? Mm, Well, it's actually an interesting story. Well, I guess you could say that I love sport. Like as a younger person, I was always playing sport, always physically active. So I think it's part of you know who I am and what I like to do. And that led me, I guess my passion for sport led me to go to university and study sport and exercise. And But another, I guess a main influence for my research topic was um, my grandma or my nan or however you um, name your grandparents. Um, so my grandma, she was very active in her later life. So when I was in my early 20s and embarking on a PhD research topic I was also observing my grandmother who wasn't particularly active when she was younger she wasn't a sporty person like I just described myself but she became quite active in her 60s and 70s and she was playing golf and she was playing cards and socializing a lot and so I observed this behavior and then at the same time I was reading about aging as I was studying 
at university and I'm reading all the negative stereotypes and the negative discourses about ageing as decline and ageing as being idle or illness. And, and then I could see my grandmother who was doing the opposite. So that made me curious about, you know, how is it that people come to be active in later life that seems to go against this dominant view of you know, passive leisure. So that kind of was what sparked my interest. And then coincidentally around, I think, yeah, it was 2001 when I started my PhD, there was an Australian Masters Games that was being held in our town, the town where I went to university. So I guess it was convenience sampling. I had this interest in my grandmother, then this dichotomy between what I saw my grandmother doing and and what the discourses were saying. And then I thought, here's an event where I can go and actually interview older people and who are active and talk to them and ask them, you know, why they do it and what it means to them. And then that spiralled into, I guess, a 20-year, 20-plus-year research career on this topic. Yeah, and you already started talking about that there was this idea or a cultural discourse around aging as decline and what you were seeing, what your grandmother was doing didn't really fit with the cultural imaginations, but a lot has actually happened since in these 20 years that you worked on the topic. So can you maybe talk us through a little bit around how has the culture evolved, cultural discourses, imaginations around aging and sport in later life? What has happened since you started working on the topic? In the late 1990s and the early 2000s where I was starting to read about this topic, as I said, there was a lot of uh, literature and discourse on aging as decline, as idle, as um, disengaging from society. So that was what I was seeing. But also there was this new discourse emerging around, uh, I guess, active aging and um, keeping active as you age. And that discourse has become more prominent, you know, in the 20 years since, and it's more prominent today. So now you see that Older people or people in general are encouraged to be active across the lifespan and older people are encouraged to be active in later life. So what that does is brings out this, what I've labelled in my research and others have too, this sort of good and bad way to age. So, you know, it's now accepted as good to age actively, but it's bad if you're passive or disengaged where and that has shifted over time so that can create I guess problems because and we might get to this later in the podcast but there's a moral agenda underlying what is considered good aging and what is considered um, bad aging and what that does is put an overemphasis on self-responsibility for health so I'd say the shift in aging has been that there's now more push for self-responsibility for health as you get older and that means that the the state can is sort of providing um, less you know resources and and less funding for healthcare in general and putting the, the onus on individuals to keep active now that may be okay for people who have the means and resources to remain active which are usually white middle class generally speaking, but that can be problematic for older people who may not want to play sport or keep active or who are ill or poor. So there's a whole range of issues that have emerged over the years that I've been you know, discussing in my research. So that's more about how I see ageing has sort of shifted and I could talk about it for a while, but I want to shift to um, sport 
so I guess sport was always seen um, as something, you know, for the young, for the robust, for the fit. And over time, over the past 20 years, we've seen that um, again now that shift of sport being primarily for young and robust, shifting it to that sport for all discourse or agenda where regardless of age or gender or disability, sport is now or sport participation is encouraged for all. And while that opens up opportunities, like for the older athlete, for example, it also can lead to um, marginalisation of other groups that, you know, don't want to or can't. There's still access issues there. So I guess sport has shifted in, in that sense as well. So they're kind of the two major shifts that I've seen and, and I guess you'd say they're the two major ways of understanding sport and ageing that I've kind of discussed in my research. Mm-hmm. And now we already discussed the evolution around the culture and thinking about aging and sport. Let's then jump a little bit back. You mentioned that your first research project was conveniently the World Master Games that came to your home city. And so I'm curious, so you went to talk to these people who participate, these athletes. What were their experiences? What were the meanings that they assigned to doing sport? and doing these quite strenuous competitions. Yeah, it was very interesting um, because, again, there was that assumption that if older people play sport, they not may not necessarily be competitive, that it's for fun or fitness. And actually the, the language and the promotion material and the discourses around master sport are typically fun, friendship, fitness. So that's how it's framed. But then when you actually go and observe people competing at these games and I was particularly focusing on 55 and above and lately even older and above you see that there's a lot of competitors who take it very seriously in the sense that and particularly males but females as well but you see them um, you know warming up wearing all the um, spike shoes and tight clothes to compete in the track and field for example or cycling So you see them wearing the sporting apparel, warming up many, or not many, but some did have a coach. Um, so, and they were trying their best. They were pushing their bodies to the limit. So that's what you observe at these events. And you realize that it's not all about fun and friendship and social and health reasons, which is also part of it. And I'll get to that, but you do notice that it's very competitive for many people. But everyone's different. And at the same time, there were lots of people who said, I'm just a weekend warrior and I just play sport on weekends. And this was another example of participating in sport and socialising. So there are those that are just there for fun and, and to make friends and to catch up with old friends. And there's team sports are usually very, have that sense of camaraderie. Individual sports can tend to be more um, competitive, but at the same time, there can be a camaraderie amongst master swimmers and cyclists. So you, it's a real mixture. You can't, I guess, categorize masters athletes because there's so many different benefits and different reasons uh, for doing it. And in some of your research, you mentioned that this being competitive is also something that they might not 
admit or talk about because the cultural discourse is expecting that yes you're doing it for fun and health reasons and it's quite countercultural if you're too serious about it so there is this identity management and this performativity as well as what is the right type of older athlete and how you are supposed to be approaching sports so there is the more normative ideas around that as well yeah that was really interesting because i so for my first study and i've replicated this at different world masters games and events over the past 20 years that i remember finding that yes they'd say in an interview particularly when i interviewed had in-depth interviews afterwards so i would my research tends to involve being on site at a World Masters Games or a Masters event, observing what I see during that event, interviewing athletes during that event, like short sort of interviews or can be short to medium interviews. And then if I have the opportunity for an in-depth interview after the event, I'd get more insight. And you'd often hear athletes say, oh, I'm not that competitive. I don't really take it that seriously. And then I'd go and watch them compete and see that they did take it seriously. Or I might hear that, I found that general theme of, yeah, it's not, there's a saying in Australia, it's not for sheep stations, which means it's not serious. It's not um, really cutthroat. But then you would see that really competitive behaviour come through. So then I had others saying, you know, I'm out there to win and I really want to win. So, yeah, so all that came through that was a surprise to me because I I was, you know, reading about the, the stereotypes that this is all meant to be fun. So it was interesting to see that there's definitely um, a competitive spirit there amongst certain people. But as I said, not everyone and everyone's different. Yeah. And doing these studies over the years then in other events, do you see that these experiences, these meanings, are they also shifting as we see that the broader cultural discourses are shifting? Yes, I do. Um, and so I'm also seeing shifts depending on where the Masters Games is located and, and who I'm interviewing um, because it can be, I guess, country or place dependent because I've done interviews at I started at my local town and then um, there was a major World Masters Games in Sydney. Then I collected data at the World Masters Games in Italy, so that had the European perspective. And then recently, oh, it's not recently now, but my, I've also collected data at the um, World Masters Games in New Zealand. And so there's culturally and country-based um, shifts in, in thinking, but also over time. And what we've noticed, and when I say we, it's because Although I started researching alone as a PhD student, I would now research in, in teams with Canadian academics and other Australian academics. And what we've found is this thinking of, well, I guess the more we analyse the data and listen to the voices, yes, there's a sense of empowerment for the individuals in that they're pushing their bodies to the limit, they're experiencing mental, physical, social health benefits on a personal level and feeling this sense of satisfaction and achievement, that all comes through. And But also what we noticed was that at the same time, while they're resisting those, I guess, stereotypes about ageing as decline, many athletes through their talk and action are also buying into and, I guess, reproducing those negative ways of ageing when they say, I don't want to get old or I fear aging or I keep active to stay out of uh, aged care or nursing home. So they're kind of reproducing those discourses at the same time as they're um, resisting them. So that's been a common theme. 
But more recently, we've noticed that there's been, particularly at the data collected at the Italy, the games in Torino, that there was this um, sense of, I guess you call it this underlying moral agenda where people might say, you know, I'm out there keeping active while others are, you know, are a burden on the healthcare system. And that there was that kind of moral judgment being made, um, which aligns with the, the change in discourse that I mentioned earlier over time. So there was that coming through and I found that quite um, interesting, but it also sort of it showed that at that point about how a lot of these older athletes tend to have the means, ability and desire to keep active and some um, recognise their privileges and others don't. And when I say changed depending on countries, what I found in the data in New Zealand was that the voices of you know, primarily New Zealand um, athletes, they were actually less judgmental, less moral agenda and they were saying, oh, I like to play sport but it's not for everyone. This is my interest, leisure interest in later life, but other people have other leisure interests. So I found that really interesting um, as well. So in the Torino games, you saw much more of this moral that everybody should be doing something like this. Mm, yeah. I did, compared to New Zealand. And I think that's reflective of the sort of, I guess, the country and the, I haven't written too much about it. It's just something that I've I observed and I actually want to write a paper on it, one of my next um, papers, because that was something that came through because I was really getting into the data that was speaking about, um, you know, this kind of us and them, like I'm active, they're not, I'm doing a good thing for society. Other people who aren't competing as sport are a burden on society. There was a lot of that talk and there's a paper that I've a couple of papers I've written on that perspective and then with the New Zealand data when I realized that I was thinking I was going to follow up and find more of that kind of voice and more of those comments but I actually found less the opposite and then I realized that okay then this might depend on the socio-political cultural climate of the country because you know and Yeah, so I and and I just found that interesting because it was really I didn't find that same kind of wording in in the talk. It was very much, as I said, this is uh, my leisure interest. I love playing sport, but it's not for everyone. And I just yeah found that fascinating. It is fascinating, and I've thought that masters sport culture is quite global in a sense. You have these big events, and people come together and. And the mm. discourses are, at least to extent, they are shared. But then you do see these more local articulations as well. So I think it's really fascinating. Mm. Yeah, it has been. And in terms of um, the, I guess if I was to generalize athletes um, in terms of participation and things like that, I also outlined, I guess, three pathways into master sport. And when I say three, it's very broad. But there you tend to find there's athletes who have continued sport through their whole life. So they're people who were active when they're younger and they've managed to be able to maintain it through their whole life. And then I've called them lifelong um, athletes or continuers of sport. Then there's also um, people or group of people that I've labelled rekindlers. So they're people who have said that they played sport when they were younger 
then they had a break, whether they had to work or raise a family, and then they've rekindled the flame and come back into sport later in life. So that's another group. And then the third one I've labelled late bloomers or beginners, which would describe my grandma that I mentioned at the start, that they she you know took up sport later in, in life and became active later. And now you obviously there are three broad categorizations and there's variations within those. But I've found that an interesting, um, I guess, typology of how to, how to understand the different uh, pathways into master sport. But I guess the thing to highlight is that a lot of these people, one, they have an interest in sport and two, they have the means and resources to be able to keep participating. And obviously it's, it's just a leisure interest of theirs. It's not for everybody. So that's another thing that my work, I guess, critiques that philosophy that everyone should be active as they age because I argue that yes some people can be active as they age but it's not everybody should be active as they age because we need to recognize that some people don't have the interest in sport and physical activity they have other interests and that's okay and some people don't have the means or access to sport and physical activity so it goes back to that we can't impose self-responsibility for activity on people when you know there's other issues that need to be addressed initially like whether it's housing or neighborhoods or um, healthcare and things like that so that's where my research talks about the socio-cultural context that this is being played out in yeah that's really important not everybody has the same resources to start start doing this and this neoliberal way of framing aging that yes everybody should just take it up and be active and it's up to you so that's that's clearly not the case in terms of there are so different cultural sociocultural factors that play a role so Mm. i'm curious with your different pathways can you somehow map into these different pathways the different relationships that people have with sport do the ones who were always doing sport do they approach it differently from the ones that took it up now and it's their first career as Mm. an athlete? I did actually. I found there was, and again, it's generally, speaking generally, but with the continuers or the lifelong, it was interesting that someone who has been an athlete their whole life, as they get older, they can't run as fast or jump as far or whatever activity they do as they did in the past. So they have a reference point of how Good they used to be if that makes sense yeah. so when so that can actually work in a couple of ways it means that um, some athletes can become frustrated that they know how they used to be able to run you know how fast they used to be able to run 100 meters and now they can only run at that so they have got to either accept that okay my times aren't going to be like they used to and I've got to accept that and still enjoy participating however some disclosed that they felt quite frustrated because they wanted to be able to compete at a at the same level and when they couldn't it wasn't as enjoyable later in life whereas mm-hmm. in contrast to that the late beginners they or the late bloomers they had no reference point it was taking something new and creating this new identity um, as an athlete or as an active person later in life so you tend to find that the late bloomers were you know, getting that a lot more, you know, positive benefits out of it. And that's just one example of of differences. And with the rekindlers, I mean, obviously it varies, but some found this renewed sense of 
you know, I miss this from my past and I'm, I'm gaining it back in later life. And so that, you know, could be re rejuvenating for many people. So there's so many variations and subtleties when you, you know, really talk to people and, and listen to what they've got to say and, and watch them. And, and it's quite fascinating because it's very dynamic for even the individual themselves. And one area that I'm interested in is actually talking to athletes who are now, you know, retired or have stopped competing due to reasons what well, could be various reasons but then reflecting on you know why they stopped and if they were previously a master's athlete and they can no longer be you know is it by choice or was it by injury or was it through stereotypes or yeah now you mention it that's clearly a big research gap that we don't know what the retirement from master sport might look like mm. Yeah. The reason I find that interesting is because I guess I have a, a concern as well in that sense because, again, going back to my grandmother, I'll just give you an example. So as I said, she was a late bloomer. She became active later in life and she was playing golf and in her 60s and regularly walking and regularly going to the club or having friends over and socialising. And then when she was in her late 80s, she got to the point where she could no longer play golf, no longer have people coming over. So so she created in this, when she was aged in her 60s and 70s, she, I guess, valued and, and created that identity as I'm an active person. And she was embracing that, which was in line with, you know, the those new discourses that were emerging about active aging, whether she recognised it or not. And this is just one example that, and there could be many other people that, that have done this. And then when um, I noticed that she was not as active and I noticed that she was like, for example, when she was sitting at, at home and, and reading and I went to see her one day, she just looked me in the eye and said, I don't want to be here anymore. And what she meant was I don't want to just sit and read. And she, so it's in a way it's like, she took on that identity as being active, valued it so much that she didn't want to be inactive, sedentary, reading a book, you know, all those passive leisure pursuits that can also be really good for one's identity and self-development in later life. She no longer valued passivity and wanted to be active and craved to be active. So when she couldn't, she just said to me, I don't want to be here anymore. So that was, you know, really heart-wrenching, but it made me think, are we creating a, gener a generation of people like this through pushing this active aging agenda so much that people like my grandmother, you know, take it on, embrace it, and then find the final years of life even harder because they value their aging identity, sorry, active identity so much. So I guess that's why I want to research that area to say, because that's just one person's experience. I want to see how others, some people might relate to that story. Others might say, oh, no, I, I made the choice because I started to want to be more spiritual or reading more or sitting and reflecting more. You know, so every story is going to be different, which is why I agree it's a research gap that we should look at because we don't want to create a generation of people that are going to find the last years of life, which we all get to eventually. So basically, if we live long enough, we're going to get to that point where we can no longer be active in sport. So how do we, as a society, embrace and value multiple ways of aging, not only the active way to age? 
Yeah, that's fascinating that there have been these intentions in terms of helping people to be more active and this will then be good for their well-being and quality of life and so forth. But it can also at the same time create quite a lot of guilt and frustration. So these are probably some of the dark sides that were not anticipated when these discourses have been pushed and they've been pushed quite aggressively as well. Yeah, that's right. They're they're kind of unintended consequences maybe of what was well-intentioned ideas, as you say. These, you know, these ideas were to get people active and because we know all the benefits. However, it also opens up the side for, as you said, that feeling guilty if you're not being active or being blamed um, as a burden on society if you, you can't, you know, look after your own health, all those kind of things, um, yeah, as you say, are the, the dark side. Yeah. So time is running. I think we covered a lot of ground, these different experiences, different discourses. Let's have a little break here, finish for the part one, and then we continue our conversation in, in the second part. So thanks for the conversation so far. Okay, thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcast or whichever app you use. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.